We are now two years into this global pandemic that has changed whether and how we travel. With some countries now loosening restrictions, we're in a bit of a confusing time. It's become possible to travel again, but it isn't becoming less complicated. One year ago, we chatted with Emily Scott, a registered nurse based in Seattle, about what the pandemic meant for travel. Today, we're reconnecting with her to learn what has changed since our last discussion. We'll touch on what Omicron means for travel, vaccine equity, and tips for traveling safely in a pandemic. Emily holds bachelor's degrees in peace studies and nursing and a diploma in tropical nursing. She has served on humanitarian medical missions and disaster response teams in eight countries, including treating Ebola patients in Sierra Leone and deploying to Nepal after the 2015 earthquake. On Instagram, Emily shares her insights on the pandemic from her perspective as a nurse, and she does an amazing job of explaining complicated and very sciencey concepts to regular folks like me. So before we get into pandemic talk, <laughs> Katie, okay, first, do you know who Nomadic Matt is? I know of Nomadic Matt. Okay. He's like a big name in the travel space. Okay. Nomadic Matt is a big name in the travel space, and he announced some news this week, and I wanted to briefly talk about it. So for those who don't know, Nomadic Matt is a well-known travel blogger. He started his blog 14 years ago with a focus on backpacking and budget travel. And over the years, it's grown a lot. He's written over 1,400 articles, 300 destination guides. He has books, and he has like an entire team working behind the scenes on his blog. Actually, you and I went to a Nomadic Matt event once in Toronto. Yes, he runs events in cities all over North America for travelers to meet up at. And they are really fun. We went to one pre-pandemic. So anyways, earlier this week, Matt released a blog post titled The End. And this was making the rounds on Twitter. Obviously, I read it. In it, he announces that he is stepping back from blogging. Nomadic Matt is going to be more of a resource than a personal travel blog. Which is interesting because he like that's one of the things that I think people always loved about his blog is it, it was very personal. And his plan is to bring in more guest writers. So there's going to be different voices that can talk about various aspects of travel that he says he can't. Mad respect there. And he's focusing now on other aspects of travel. So he'll be writing more books, running events, group tours, and community meetups. That's huge. It is huge. And actually, like in the blog too, he said that he's been working up to this moment for six years. So he's been thinking about this for a long time. So this is why. His reason for stepping back is that he's working toward finding more balance in his life. And this is what he said. I'll quote, I want to settle down more, start a garden, join social clubs in Austin and have more regularity in my life and just be on the move less. I want to travel more intentionally without always an eye toward how can I blog about this. I don't want to take pictures of menus anymore or go around to grocery stores looking up prices. I thought that this announcement was so relatable and interesting and important because I think that he highlights 
so many interesting things in in this and it's a short blog like I recommend people go and read it but he highlights so many like very real feelings (laughs) that I've definitely experienced like he touches on travel burnout blogger burnout and he also I didn't include it in the quote but he talks a little bit about how like his reality of travel has changed like as he's gotten older the way that he travels has changed he went from being like more of a backpacker to like wanting to stay in nicer places and eat in nicer restaurants And probably his like funding also through the blog changed. So maybe budget travel wasn't something that he really needed to do anymore. And he wanted to explore that side of travel because he could. Yeah. And also just like, as you get older, I think it's very natural for people to want more stability and routine and to set down roots. And that kind of came out. And as someone who's like now in her early 30s, I have noticed this about myself, like the way that I travel has changed. And the things that are important to me have changed as well. Like I care more about routine and having like a nice home to live in and spending time with family. Whereas like in my 20s, I could go months of traveling and like be totally fine. Yeah, I think like the pandemic likely put a different spin on things for us too, where, you know, we we feel closer to home in our hearts now, I think, because we want to make sure that all of our loved ones are safe and happy and well. And so traveling so much and being away from them is a bit of a scary proposition probably going forward, where people are probably thinking about the people that are still at home waiting for them. And I also, the thing I appreciated about this was Like in the blogger community, especially I notice like on Instagram and TikTok and just like in the blogosphere for travel, there's a lot of emphasis on like becoming a digital nomad and making your whole life about travel. And I feel like this change for him is showing that it's okay to not want that or not thrive living that way. It's okay to like be a travel expert and a blogger, but still have like an established life at home. Sometimes I feel like there's like this pressure that if you work in the travel sphere at all, like you should be a digital nomad and uh, it's okay to not be. It's okay to just enjoy being a tourist. 100%. Please take all of your fun tourist photos, spend money, have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Especially now, like just go enjoy yourself. Just go. (laughs) No shade to digital nomading. Like that is amazing. And I'm sure I would enjoy it, but... I think it's like really individual. It depends on what each person wants. So anyways, found that really interesting. It was a great read. I recommend that people go and read Nomadic Matt's thoughts on uh, kind of retiring from blogging. And on that note, we're announcing... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, imagine. (laughs) Okay, we do have to announce something though, which is that this episode is the last episode of season four. It is. And not in a sad way, in a very exciting way. We have lots of really fun stuff planned for season five and also just a lot of ideas that are brewing between the two of us that we're trying to (laughs) unpack. So we're not going anywhere anytime soon, but this is the last episode of season four so that Aaron and I can take a little break, take a step back, breathe and not talk, you know, (laughs) and not think. I would like to not think for a little while. (laughs) Yes, yes. So like looking back, Erin, I have to know, like, how are you feeling about season four? What stood out to you the most? Oh, my gosh. I can't narrow it down to one thing because 
I loved every single episode and every guest we had was amazing and had so much to contribute. I'm curious, like what our Apocalypse thought, actually. I'd love I'm to hear so like what episodes were too. their favorites or like what criticisms they might have. So feel free to let us know. Yeah. But honestly, like, hey, looking back for me, I think this, especially right now, we're talking about realistically along the lines of like Nomadic Matt's decision and just the last two years. There's obviously been a lot of emphasis on mental health the last little while. And I think one of the episodes that like weirdly stuck with me in that sense was our India syndrome episode. And just like this idea that people will leave their home or go out and try and find, you know, who they are and solve for their mental health problems somewhere outside of home. And one of the most like striking things to me was hearing like that statement that like, you can find the help you need at home. And I think especially right now where we can't escape really to go and find ourselves, quote unquote, it is so important to know that the help is at home (laughs) and that you can still explore who you are and what it is that makes you you from the comfort of your home or your neighborhood or your city. And I thought that was just so refreshing to hear, even though I feel like I already knew that, but to a certain extent, I needed to hear it. (laughs) No, you're right, because I think there's a lot of narratives that float around that like romanticize this idea of finding, like finding yourself abroad or I think you're right. Like the reality is that we spend most of our time at home, especially with the pandemic. And so doesn't it make the most sense to to find that peace at home? So what's the plan for season five? Should we tell the Alpaca Pals anything? Yes, I think you should. Okay. So Alpaca Pals, you know, we typically release a season in October. Um, but since we did a shorter season, we are going to be refreshed a little sooner. So I think you can expect to see season five in your playlist a lot sooner. I'm not going to say when because I don't want to make promises and then disappoint <laughs> anyone. So yes. just know that it'll come sooner than October. Yes. Sometime <laughs> before October, you can expect it. And I also feel it's important to say that we are probably going to be quiet on Instagram, but we're still there. So feel free to message us. We're probably just not going to post that much because, yeah, we like to take a little break. But we'll check in every once in a while and your messages will always be read and responded to. So if you have anything you want to say, please pop in and send us a message. All right. Should we get into it with Emily? Yes. Erin, it's been such a great season. I love you so much. I can't wait for us to have a break. I love you too. I'm excited for our break and our little vacation together. Yay. (laughs) All right. Let's chat with Emily. Welcome back, Emily. It's been almost another year since we last talked. And once again, this year has felt like a decade. This is always a loaded question in pandemic times, but how are you? I'm okay. I was, again, listening to our last episode just today for a refresher. And I think we were both saying, like, this is the final stretch. And from here on, it's only going to get better. We've got vaccines that just hang in there. And like, I'm like, oh, that's hard to hear. So yeah, so on a societal level, I'm not super happy. It's been hard to watch how little people care about each other and where we are when this all could have been avoided. On a personal level, thank you, therapy. I'm okay. I'm like, (laughs) 
figuring out how to live with this new normal because um, we're not getting the previous normal back. Yeah. Onward. <laughs> you know, in the last episode we recorded together last March, you said that everyone should be in therapy right now, like like all the time, but especially in this pandemic. And the amount of times I have quoted that to other people in the last year, so many times, so many times, because it's so true. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, it's rough out there right now. Well, I know that since we last talked, you have gotten to travel. Do you want to tell us about where you went and also what it felt like to leave your state for the first time since the start of the pandemic? Well, my husband and I went to Hawaii back in May 2021 when we were like kind of in between waves, I think. For me, I was not comfortable on the plane because I'm constantly aware of what's going on all the time. My therapist says I'm like a blacklight for covid and masks and like i just i just expose all the ugliness that's actually there that most people don't notice so like <laughs> my husband would say like oh everyone was masked on the plane and it seemed fine and safe whereas i would say well the person across from us had their mask under their nose and the person next to you was wearing a cloth mask which is like not really good and the person in behind us had one of those masks with the valves on it so everything they were breathing was just exhaling right out that valve so they may not as well just like be wearing a mask at all so <laughs> Like, to me, I'm like, oh, my God, that was a very high-risk situation. But certainly loved being able to travel again. I don't think we really got back on a plane for a while because I didn't enjoy it. It was very high stress for me, maybe because I'm a healthcare worker and I just know too much. But So we were doing kind of more road tripping. I did just get back from Niger for a um, global health job I'm a part of. So that's West Africa. That was my biggest travel I've done since COVID started. Three long flights each way. Wow. Lots of people not wearing masks. Did I get into an altercation with people who refused to put their masks on the plane? Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) This is why we love you. (laughs) Yeah, like I'm going to say something. It definitely didn't feel comfortable or super safe, but I made it there and back without catching COVID. So... I'm dipping my toe back in. Yeah, yeah. I relate to the anxiety. I've taken two flights in the last year, like since we last spoke. And the first one was definitely incredibly nerve wracking. And then the second one, I went to Portugal, like when things were in a lull, right before Omicron hit and coming back, Omicron was just ramping up. And my friend and I, the entire flight, were like, we're wearing an N95 but we're going to get it. Like, there's no way. And somehow we did not get Omicron on the way home. But oh my gosh, it was so scary coming home. I was very I mean, anxious. if anything, this is a testament to how well a high quality N95 works. Like, Yeah, I know for me, mind you, I don't have the same like radar. So I think especially on my second flight, when I went to Portugal, I felt like pretty okay about it. I was nervous in Portugal. Like, I basically didn't go to restaurants and I minimized like all that stuff and kept my activities to the outdoors to try to feel as safe as possible. But I still felt like very happy to be doing it. I felt like a little piece of my life was back and I felt like it's really extreme, but I actually felt like I got to be myself for two weeks in a way that I hadn't in two years. So I'm wondering like what it felt like for you and if it gave you any hope because I must say like coming back from Portugal I was like this was hard and anxiety inducing but I know I can do this now and there is a way to travel in this pandemic and it gave me hope that there's more trips in my future so 
I so relate. Even though this this most recent, this Niger trip was a job I was working for Global Health and it wasn't like we got to do tourism stuff and certainly we kept everything outside as much as we could. To be in another country, to speak another language, hear another language spoken, just be immersed in a different culture for a while reignited a part of my personality that had been dormant for two years. It felt <laughs> amazing to get back out and start doing it again, getting one under my belt. And I was as safe as I possibly could be. And, you know, knock on wood, it worked. So like I said, I'm just dipping my toe back into it. So Doug, it does give me hope and more confidence, though I'm definitely aware it's not foolproof. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, I think like the biggest lesson for me was just that travel is like even more of a privilege than it was before, which is wild to say, but it actually is like, it's more expensive. It requires like a lot of planning and yeah, I just found it like very complicated compared to travel of the past. It's definitely so, so much more complicated. That extra layer, if you're going somewhere that has any COVID restrictions at all of like getting your test. Especially yeah. when I was trying to get out for this trip, this job in Niger, it was like, you you know, you have to be tested within 24 hours of getting on your flight. But at that point, we were at like the height of Omicron and like to get a result back in 24 hours was really hard. And, you know, same thing for getting on the way back. Everything's got to be timed out correctly. It's definitely, it's a lot of work. You got to plan. Coming back from Portugal, like our problem was that we couldn't find a clinic that could do a PCR and get the results back in time to account for the amount of flight time to get back to Canada. We spent an entire day catastrophizing over this. And I was like, I don't have the math skills to calculate how much of a window we need. It was very, very hard. Oh, on our way back from Niger, we tested to get out of Niger. And then because of our layover, length of flight, whatever, timing of the day, we tested again in the airport in Istanbul in order to be tested before we got back to the United States. It's just <laughs> There's testing in the airport in Istanbul. There's like a whole testing section. You just bop up. There's little pods. They swab you. You get your results in like 90 minutes. It's all in the airport. So for, wow. for Turkish folks, they just do it before their flight. Like no big deal. I was like, wow. why don't we have that in America? <laughs> yeah. I actually think we do have that in Toronto, but... I don't recall seeing that in Portugal. That's like very, uh, that might be like a total norm in the coming yeah. years in airports to have like those little clinics that you can pop by. So I don't want to like talk about vaccines too much because we talked about them a lot last time, but I think there's been some developments that are important to talk about, especially when we're talking about vaccines and how they impact travel. Right now is a bit of a frustrating time because the messaging about vaccines and how they work is really confusing. So I was hoping you could clear a few things up. So we're being told to get vaccinated and boosted because it will protect us. But despite people getting vaccinated, um, especially here in Canada, and I know in the U.S. as well, our health systems are completely overwhelmed by Omicron. Could you explain why this is and how we should be thinking about vaccines and their purpose? Because I think, like full disclosure, I am boosted, but I know now that there's still a likelihood that I'll get Omicron despite being boosted. And yeah, I've noticed a lot of people find this confusing. So I'm hoping you can help clear it all up. Yeah, it is confusing. And the public health messaging on this keeps changing. And with each variant, 
it keeps changing and I think people get confused that they're being lied to, but really just like things are changing so quickly. Vaccine efficacy that was true for original COVID strain is very different from Omicron, but absolutely still worth getting vaccinated and boosted. The easiest way for me to think about it and to compare it to folks who like aren't scientists um, is to think about it like seatbelts. Does wearing a seatbelt mean you're never going to get hurt in a car accident? You're never going to end up being like hospitalized in a car accident? You know, no, of course not. Like nothing works 100% of the time. But, you know, if you get in a car accident and you're wearing your seatbelt and you like get a little bruised up, but you like don't fly through the windshield, would you really say your seatbelt didn't work or that there was no point in wearing a seatbelt? No. You know, so same as if you get like a mild case of Omicron, a breakthrough case, it doesn't mean your vaccine didn't work. It very likely kept you from having a serious case. By the way, this is like true for all vaccines, not just COVID vaccines, all medications, all supplements, everything. Like nothing works 100% of the time, all the time perfectly. That's an unfair thing to ask of any kind of medication or treatment or vaccine of any kind. There will be breakthroughs, especially with Omicron. It's causing more breakthroughs. It is more contagious. The bottom line is for folks who are trying to decide if they want to get boosted or vaccinated, like you are going to be exposed to COVID at some point. You just are like, there's just no way around it. When that happens, do you want to be vaccinated or not? Just like, just like getting a car accident. Those are the odds you're given, the choices you're being faced with. You know, it's also important to remember though efficacy has decreased somewhat with COVID, it's still very effective or with Omicron rather, it's still very effective against um, severe disease and hospitalization. And it still does help prevent spread. You still are less likely, even if you if you catch a breakthrough case, you're less likely to spread it to others. So it is important to do for the people around you, even if you're like, I'm young and healthy, and I don't care, I'm not going to be in the hospital. Well, this is helping all the rest of us. So if you could just like, <laughs> get on board, we'd really appreciate it. And as far as overwhelming health systems, I'm much better versed about the U.S.'s stats than Canada's, though I imagine a lot of this still applies. It is the unvaccinated that are overwhelming our healthcare systems. The vast majority of people in hospitals and ICUs are unvaccinated people. They are the people who are overwhelming our system. They just are. In the situations where like, there are some countries that have super, super high vaccination rates, where people will kind of skew the statistics and say, well, like, oh, well, there's more vaccinated people in the hospital in this country than unvaccinated people, you know, with COVID. And that's to get a little sciencey, but I think it's relevant and important. That's called the base rate fallacy. So <sighs> if we can use seatbelts again. So if you have read about this, yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, this is what I mean. Everybody knows what, like, all these science concepts are now, which is kind of cool, actually. <laughs> For seatbelts in a, in a like in the U.S. in a country where like whatever ninety five percent of people are wearing their seatbelts all the time, of course there's going to be a higher number of people in, who get hospitalized for car accidents who were wearing seatbelts because the vast majority of people are wearing seatbelts. There's just only a small number of people who aren't wearing seatbelts. But if you compare like the percentages within those groups, like more the higher percentage of people who are in a car accident while not wearing a seatbelt are in the hospital. So same thing with with vaccines. If you have a country where 99% of people are vaccinated and there's only a couple of unvaccinated people and you have breakthrough infections and, you know, the elderly and the immune compromised are still at higher risk for being hospitalized. So some people are still going to be hospitalized. Like the actual raw number of vaccinated people who are in the hospital when 99% of the population is vaccinated. Yeah, they're going to be 
mostly vaccinated people because there's only a tiny like 1% of people who are unvaccinated. There's not a very large population to draw from. But most of those unvaccinated people are going to be in the hospital, right? You know, or a higher percentage of them anyway. So I hope that makes sense. That's one thing that's it kind does. of going around yeah. that's skewing the data. Yeah. And the reason I knew about the base rate fallacy is because I, I saw people sharing misinformation about unvaxxed versus vaxxed people in hospitals here in Toronto, which is an interesting example because 90%, I think it's around 90% of Canadians are vaccinated and the vax rate in the city of Toronto is very, very high. So people were bringing this up as like proof that vaccines don't work. And it's like, well, only 10% of people are unvaxxed, but they represent 40% or whatever of people in the hospital. That's a large percentage in the hospital compared to how many people are in that pool. It's like hard to wrap your head around, but like it makes total totally, sense. Totally, totally. Yeah. And just one last thing about vaccines before we talk Oh, I can more talk broadly. vaccines all day. <laughs> I know you can. <laughs> That's my favorite Boosters. <laughs> Boosters really help with Omicron is what I've heard. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely worth getting a booster. It just, it just is. I mean, you are certainly getting some protection from your first two doses, but we are seeing that immunity wanes. And again, this is something that like, this is all happening in real time. Like I don't, we don't have any way of predicting how long this is immunity is going to last because we're, we're figuring, we're testing it as we go. I hear a lot from people that are like, well, what if we have to keep getting boosters? And I'm sorry, people may not want to hear this, but like, okay, so if you need to keep getting a booster every year, like you get a flu shot, like, so if that means we can all have our lives back, is that not okay with you? Um, I don't know that that's the case. I'm hoping that's not the case. And we're still doing certainly more research and like working on a variant proof vaccine that would be like work against all variants. But certainly getting a third shot does not mean your original two didn't work. Plenty of shots we get in childhood are a three dose series. You just don't remember because you were like two when you got your third dose. Mm -hmm. But this is not an unusual thing for vaccines. You're talking to someone who's had like six rabies shots. Like I'm well aware that they get repeated. (laughs) So the first vaccines were administered in December 2020. I do remember the video of that little old lady in the UK who got the first vaccine. It was so cute. So now, as we start 2022, over 9 billion vaccine doses have been administered around the world, and over 50% of the world's population is now fully vaccinated. And I think that these are interesting stats to think about, especially if you are traveling, because it seems like an accomplishment, but really we have a long way to go to get to a higher rate of vaccination worldwide. But why is it important to reach that higher percentage of world population vaccinated and to do it sooner rather than later? Variants, basically. So... This is why we are continuing to get new variants and we are just like constantly behind and trying to catch up and chase this thing. Every time someone catches COVID, um, it's a chance for the virus to mutate. And that's how we get new variants. And some of them will be more mild and some of them will be more serious. It's like it's a it's a common misconception that viruses automatically mutate to become more mild over time. And that's just not the case. It's just kind of luck of the draw. So if we keep letting COVID spread completely, we will eventually get a variant that's nasty and more serious and more, you know, more contagious like Omicron has been. So the best way to slow that down is to stop people from catching COVID. Fortunately, and unfortunately, we're all in this together. 
the world is too small now. Anybody can hop on a plane. We cannot just shut everything, you know, shut portions of the world off that um, don't have high vaccination rates. So where we don't know where this next variant is coming from, but the more unvaccinated people we have, the more spread we get, the more likely it is that we'll get another variant. So unsurprisingly, wealthy countries have been the first to purchase and administer vaccines, which has been raising some questions about vaccine equity. Could you explain what vaccine equity is and what we're seeing in terms of vaccine access around the world at this moment? Yeah, vaccine equity basically just means everybody around the world, no matter what country or continent you're on, should have the same access to vaccines, which is not currently the case at all. The vast majority of vaccines have been administered in high and middle income countries. Uh, Like 68% of the world has had their first dose of the vaccine and only 10% of people in low income countries have even had one dose. I'm over here having had my third dose many months ago. Anyone in the U.S. has could have had their third dose many months ago. And there are healthcare workers and elderly and high-risk people in low-income countries who like have not even had their first dose yet. So that's a big problem. Some of it is also hesitancy. Like I was saying, just having been back from Niger, working with healthcare workers there, they have access. They have vaccines. They have been victim to a lot of misinformation. And so a lot of them are not getting vaccinated. That's a major problem. Yeah, I was reading that that is a problem, which actually was surprising to me, because I always think of like misinformation as such like a North American issue. But I also was reading that getting vaccines to more remote regions can be logistically challenging, um, which makes sense because like the vaccines we're getting here in Canada have to be refrigerated at a really high temperature. Getting them out to more remote areas takes like special kinds of vehicles and technology to make sure the vaccines are like kept at the right temperature. Would you say that this is another one of the barriers that's keeping the world from getting to a higher state of vaccination? Absolutely. And it's been a problem with vaccine equity, like before, long before COVID vaccines for any vaccine, you know, measles vaccines or, you know, even the most basic stuff. Like I work a lot in limited resource settings and there are plenty, every little clinic in the middle of nowhere that I've ever been at has like a little cooler and a bunch of ice packs and they pop their vaccines in there and they put it on the back of a motorcycle and they drive on out to the villages and that's how they get it. So There are just so many logistical challenges from like cold chain, like we talked about, or, you know, certain places in Africa I've been during rainy season, the roads are toast. It's all mud, like you're not getting anywhere. And it's one thing, even if you have a single dose vaccine, when you have a theoretically three dose schedule to make this happen three times on the right timing. Like following up with the people that you vaccinated. Finding these people, you know, places that don't have electronic health record. Like how are you keeping this organized? Places in the world that have, that are like refugee populations that are moving around a lot, that are crossing borders. How do you deal with those populations? It's very, very, very difficult. What is the solution for this? Like, I guess Johnson and Johnson, <laughs> from what I hear, like, is not being widely used anymore. So, do we have any other single dose vaccinations? Not to my knowledge. I know that there are some things being worked on. I th- I know there's some that there's a more promising vaccine. I haven't read up a whole lot about it yet. That is looking better for like limited resource settings. 
Yeah. I mean, I worry a lot about the the logistics, I think, is something that we've been kind of like working on for a long time. And we can, it's challenging, but I think we can figure out it out. Yeah. Have, like I keep like repeating myself, but having just come back from Niger, I was really taken aback by the hesitancy. And that is, that is really hard to combat. And I don't know that we've really had to do a lot of that before, especially with social media. WhatsApp groups in Africa apparently are just like taking off with crazy vaccine misinformation and like that's going to be a very difficult thing to figure out how to battle especially when like there's so much colonialism and racism as a part of this and it looks really bad when white folks show up and tell all these people that we need to vaccinate them and they're like well your country looks like it's burning to the ground with COVID doesn't seem to be helping you and I'm like well that's I see your point, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a really complicated thing to try to explain. And it's like, why would we trust trust you? Like you colonial figures coming here and now telling us once again what to do. And in places where you've got a polio outbreak, a measles outbreak, cholera outbreak, malaria season, terrorism maybe. They're like, <laughs> well, really? Like we've got some other stuff going on. So can we worry about COVID maybe after we figure all that? Like I get it. I really do. But yeah. it's still got to be tackled. Expect the best, but prepare for the worst might as well be the new motto for traveling during COVID-19. While vaccination, masking, and other preventative measures certainly help decrease your risk, there's still a chance that your travels will be disrupted by the virus. That's why you really need good travel insurance. If things go wrong on your travels, World Nomads will be there to provide the assistance you need, from trip cancellation to emergency medical benefits. Policies that cover COVID-19 related events vary depending on your country of residence, so it's important to read your policy wording. Benefits, limits, conditions, and exclusions apply. Learn more and get your travel insurance quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. What do you think, like, I'm sure we talked about this last year, but but what do you think we do? Like, what do you do about misinformation, like, globally? I think... <sighs> how much I know, have? it's like an impossible answer. It's it's so hard. It's so hard. And I've now been doing this for a couple of years. And I'm even I'm, like, hitting a wall, like, in, with misinformation in the U.S. I'm like, gosh, I feel like I've reached the people I can reach. And the people that are left are so entrenched and so angry that I don't know how to even begin to reach them. I think a one key thing is having people talk to members of their own community. Like if it's your church that a group that doesn't want to get vaccinated, if the pastor will speak at you know on Sunday or whatever. If you're talking about a limited resource setting or a developing country, like having leaders from those communities. Like I'm not going to pop over to Niger. I mean, like I said, I was just there and I was working with some healthcare workers on a on like a maternal child health project. And in my heart, I wanted to talk to them all about vaccination because I want them all to get vaccinated and I know they aren't. But I'm like, this isn't my this isn't why I'm here. I don't they don't know me at all. It's probably not gonna do any good. Like they need to hear it from a leader in their own community. Unfortunately, in the United States, the best indication of whether you're vaccinated or not is your political affiliation and people don't like to hear that but it is fact it's like if you're going to try to predict who's vaccinated it's you know more than 
age or race. It's whether you're a Democrat or Republican. So if we can get more Republicans to start speaking about it, that would make a difference. But because they don't certainly don't want to hear it from me. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I mean, I the New York Times did a study. Maybe you read the same one where they surveyed a bunch of people and they, that was the one finding. Okay, so considering the challenges of getting vaccines to people around the world, clearly it's going to be a long and complicated process with a lot of barriers. I'm curious to know if the issue of vaccine equity is changing how you travel or influencing where you travel or like your future considerations for travel. Like how should we be factoring the realities of vaccine equity into how we plan our travels in the coming year or years? Yeah, it's complicated. I think a lot of it is definitely doing research and listening to locals. Like there are certainly places that feel like they don't want people traveling right now. Like I mentioned, we went to Hawaii last year. I would not do that now. They've been very clear that they don't want people coming. That's a big thing. Taking the time to learn what the COVID rules are on the ground and and following them and not not pushing just because you're on vacation. For me, when I'm traveling for fun, I am definitely taking vaccine equity into account. I feel safer in a place that has higher vaccination rates because it's probably also going to correlate with like having a better healthcare system overall if something did go wrong or you know having more pro- safety protocols in general. You're probably if a place has a 90% vaccination rate, they're probably overall taking things more seriously than like the US is for whatever reason those places aren't generally the places I like to travel. I like I like to go to developing countries and get off the beaten path and stuff like that. And when I work in global health, that's, that's you know, they don't need me to go to Iceland. It's a little bit of both for sure. I struggle because I certainly want to go back to Africa, but I don't see them reaching the vaccination rate even of the United States like anytime soon. I can see you like struggling with this because it's something that my partner and I have been debating as well. Like actually literally today we booked a trip to Iceland for later in the year. And the reason we did was because like, it's one of those trips that we knew we would want to do at some point, but we've just always put it off because there's been other places we prefer to travel. And we were trying to wrap our heads around going to Central America. And we ultimately decided against it because there's just too many variables. And we were like, do we want to accidentally catch COVID and be stuck down there and have our jobs wondering where we are? And like the logistics of it all was too overwhelming. So we were just like, let's go somewhere with a high vax rate where we can bubble ourselves in a van out in the yeah, wilderness. Yeah, we've had the exact same conversation. Like we've, again, again yeah, we've had Iceland on our list and I'm like, well, maybe we move it up the list because, you know, yeah, and yeah. I think people, some people would say that I'm living in fear and people keep telling me, well, like you're vaccinated, you're boosted, you're young, you're healthy. And I'm like, yes, I grasp that. But A, the logistics is annoying. I don't want to get stuck somewhere for two weeks and the work and the like, if you have kids, the childcare and the like, it just upends your life. And I think worldwide, we do not talk about long COVID enough. I recognize that I am unlikely to be hospitalized with COVID because I'm young and healthy and boosted, but lots of people have long COVID. We do not know what that's going to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now. Plenty of viruses like HPV causes cervical cancer later in your life. Like we're looking at connections between Epstein-Barr and multiple sclerosis. Like I don't want to find out 30 years from now that I have, you know, a degenerative disorder because I caught COVID when I was in my 30s. I don't want it. I recognize that eventually we'll probably all get it. I'm going to try and put that off as long as I can. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm of the same mind, honestly. Like, And I do think that a lot of people, especially in our age group, don't think about the reality of long COVID enough. And we should be because it it's going to be an issue in the future. And there are people that like, I have had friends now who have had COVID and they say like, even in the short term, like they've spent months recovering, getting back to like their fitness level that they were before. And, and when I think about it like that, it's like, no, I, I don't want to experience that if I can avoid it. And we have such a warped idea of what someone with pre-existing conditions looks like when we're talking about like asthma or diabetes or obesity or like any number of stuff that's like, or pregnancy, you know, any number of stuff that's like pretty common when people are always like, oh, well, it's only really an issue for people with pre-existing conditions. And like, I guarantee you, you know, someone or you are someone who has something on this list. It's very, it's a lot of stuff. I have asthma and that makes me nervous about getting COVID just especially at the start of the pandemic, I was like out getting all my inhalers ready. Like, who knows? It's scary to think about. Yeah. Before we move on from vaccine equity, I'm curious if you like have, are able to give us like any sense of what the future will look like for global vaccination. Like if you compare it to other... Like vaccination programs? Yes. If you compare it to other vaccination programs, what do you think the outlook is? Like, do you think we're years away or just a few years, a lot of years? Like... Can you predict it all? Are you psychic? <laughs> yeah, I'm really I'm really worried about the hesitancy part of it. That really worries me. I I don't know for sure. I hope I'm wrong, but I think when we're already at a place where we like have the supply, we just need to get it where it needs to go. I'm I'm really worried that we're going to get to a place where like everything's where it needs to be, the vaccines are available and but like a lot of people aren't going to get them. I mean, we're already seeing that in the United States, you know. And we're just exporting that misinformation everywhere. So I'm very concerned about that. Yeah. So we could be at a really high vaccination rate globally in two years, potentially, because like in two years, we got to 50%. So by that math, like in two years, we could be at 100%. It's just a question of how much is hesitancy going to like slow that process down. Yep. I mean, certainly some of that has to do with like political will and funding and donating vaccines. Absolutely. I think that's doable within a couple of years if everybody really tries. But what I mean, if if the people on the ground don't want it, then you've got another issue. Let's talk now about the current COVID landscape. I'm trying to sound really happy when like, really, this is very depressing for me <laughs> to still be talking about the COVID landscape. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, and we we just touched on this a little bit, like talking about um, pre-existing conditions and long COVID. But I, I think that's part of what makes us in like such a tough moment right now, because everyone has such varying degrees of risk. I saw you mention a while back on your Instagram, the difference between individual risk and community risk. And I felt like that was such an important point to bring up. Could you explain what you mean by that and why it's important for us to think about these two types of risk and especially in the context of when we're traveling? So as far as individual risk, if you like took me, for example, me personally as one human being, I'm young, healthy, vaccinated, boosted, don't have pre-existing conditions. If I catch an Omicron breakthrough case, it'll probably be mild. It may be completely asymptomatic. Uh, my individual personal risk is very low, but my community risk where I live, where so many people are still unvaccinated, Omicron is highly, highly contagious. So even if it's a little bit less likely to cause severe illness, way more people are in the hospital because way more people are sick overall. With an uncontrolled 
outbreak like this, it affects everyone, whether you personally have COVID or not. So we've got people overwhelming healthcare systems, unvaccinated people overwhelming healthcare systems mostly, which means like my hospital is being held together with duct tape. Basically, we've got National Guard deployed to my hospital. We've got FEMA nurses that are helping staff us like around the US. You've got people dying in ER waiting rooms because there are not enough beds and not dying of COVID, dying of like my appendix burst because they couldn't get me into the ER in time or I had a heart attack and there wasn't a bed for me. You know, if things get bad enough, schools have to get shut down, travel is affected. So while I may personally be fine and I'm personally okay with the idea of me getting a breakthrough infection, if I allow that, I don't take any precautions, I'm just contributing to this huge community disaster because it's very unlikely that you're going to get COVID and not give it to anyone else, especially um, if you're like not taking any precautions. You're going to give it to someone else. It's highly contagious. It's going to reach someone who ends up in a hospital. It grows exponentially. So we need to start thinking not just about like, well, I'm fine. It's going to just, you know, it's going to be mild for me. And that's very well maybe true. But you are part of a greater community and we all have to work together to get our lives back. Yeah. So it's about thinking about how how if you get infected, that will it impact the community around you by proxy. Yeah. If you're telling me you're going to get COVID and you're somehow going to know before you have symptoms because you're contagious before you show symptoms, you're telling me you're not going to give it to anyone else. That's one thing. That's pretty unlikely. You're probably going to give it to a couple of other people. They're statistically each going to give it to a couple of other people. And if you draw that out, it becomes huge very quickly. And especially if you are like operating in a community where people aren't masking as much and everything is open, like the likelihood of that is just so much higher. Absolutely. Ugh. Okay. Another pandemic hot topic <laughs> is the question of endemicity. Ooh, I said it. I was worried I wouldn't be able to pronounce that, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, everyone is tired. We're seeing the evidence of this more and more. We have a convoy happening here in Canada. I think most people around the world have heard about this now. And I look at that and I just think like a little bit of me understands because people are tired. But what do we like? What do we do about this? Like, are we actually ready to move into an em endemic stage? Because I did Google what endemic means, and it doesn't really seem like we are <laughs> at an endemic stage yet, based on like the Google definition I found. So yeah, how will reaching endemicity happen? Are we there yet? Do you think it's going to be there in the future? And what does it mean for travel? So there's a lot of different definitions of endemic floating around and it's getting people confused and certainly in some ways endemic just means something is always in this area like you would say certain plants are endemic to Washington and like but in a infectious disease epidemiology standpoint endemic means a steady state of transmission so you're not having huge explosive growths or these waves that we constantly keep chasing um, your rates are static. Maybe it's static at a high rate, maybe it's static at a low rate, but they're but they're static pretty much. Endemic does not mean it's not a problem or that it's not severe anymore. Like I think a lot of people are throwing it around in that way. Like when we get to endemic, life will be normal again, which just that's not what it means. So like AIDS is endemic in the US. Malaria is endemic to many parts of Africa. That does not mean that they don't kill people. It doesn't mean that we don't take precautions against them. Like I take antimalarials when I go to parts of Africa that where malaria is endemic, because that's what you do. You don't just say, like, well, it's endemic, so we don't worry about it anymore. 
endemic COVID in the United States does not mean no masks, no restrictions, everything's back to normal. That's just not what it means. We all as a as a community, worldwide community, I suppose, get to decide what endemic is going to mean to us. So we do we want to reach a static state of transmission that's really high where you know, immune compromised and elderly people have to be scared to go to the grocery store and basically lock themselves in their homes because the community won't protect them or a state of transmission where our health systems are just like constantly on the very brink of collapsing. Or do we want to reach an endemic state where we have pretty low transmission and we're willing to do what it takes to get there? Maybe that means we put on masks when things start to, you know, creep up again or we're very careful about testing before gatherings or like all of these things in conjunction, but we kind of get to decide like here on out <laughs> long term, how many like daily deaths are acceptable to us. And that's what we get to decide <laughs> what endemic yeah. means to us. Yeah. I did read a tweet that said that, that like deciding we're endemic part of that equation is just deciding that we're okay with a certain amount of daily death, which is, dark but it's true um i mean we do the same thing with the flu like thousands of people die of the flu long before covid it's many it's a much smaller number than covid how but like it could be much smaller we saw that the first year of covid like hardly anybody died of the flu because we were all wearing masks and staying home so it's up to us to decide how many people we're willing to let die and i think like another part that i've been thinking about a lot like similar to the US, Canada's healthcare system, like, although it is public, which is wonderful, it is collapsing just because of like sheer numbers. We just don't have the funding and the amount of healthcare workers needed to support like the amount of COVID cases we currently have. And to me, it's like, if we're going to declare being endemic, wouldn't that mean our healthcare workers aren't quitting all the time because they literally cannot handle like mentally having to go to work every day like to me endemic would mean we're at a stage where like we actively have enough resources to support people who do have covid and we just seem so far away from that so i like i don't know at least in the context of canada it doesn't make sense (laughs) no i completely agree and it does feel like we as healthcare workers have been forgotten in people's rush to just get back to normal when like we don't have that option like it's just hellish to be working in a hospital right now in my opinion a lot of people have just decided like well we're we feel fine we feel normal that's not available as an option for us so um i am not looking forward to a future in which yeah our communities have decided like yeah just living on the brink of healthcare collapse all the time is is our new normal and that's how it's going to be uh, it, I mean, like I said, it, it just, it's not just COVID. It filters down into everything else. So you're not going to get good care for any reason you're in the hospital if there are not enough nurses or if all the nurses are brand new out of school because all of the nurses have been working for only five years, got burnt out and quit. It's a big problem. When I, when I Googled endemic, I was very much like, this does not seem where we're at yet, folks. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, look at our numbers. How can you be telling me? I mean, like our su- our Super Bowl, and I don't know when this is airing, but our Super Bowl was yesterday, and like seventy thousand people went. And somebody tweeted that like that's the number of people that died of COVID in the last month. And like that's not normal. That's not endemic. That's not just like we're gonna live like this now. A whole state, a football stadium worth of people is gonna die every month 
from a preventable disease. Well, I saw a tweet that was like, and I didn't fact check these numbers, like I'd have to go and check. But at one point in the US, the same amount of people were dying daily as died on 9-11. And I found that such a stark comparison because it's like there was so much national grief and continues to be like so much national grief for that day and the lives lost on that day. And we don't allot that same grief towards the people who've died in this pandemic, like for no reason. No, there's been no collective grieving process for our COVID losses. And I think we just hit 900,000, which would be... 9-11 every day for 10 months. And can That's you imagine so if half the country was just like, let her rip. Uh, you know, two planes are going to fly to the World Trade Center every day. And that's just how we live. <laughs> yeah. But I think it kind of speaks to the fatigue bit that I was touching on earlier. Like, I have noticed this, like, genuinely amongst people, like, even people I know who are just kind of at the point where they're like, I get that this thing I'm going to go, like, I'm going to go see a movie. I get that it's risky, but I'm just so tired. I need to go see a movie. Mm -hmm. How do we combat that, that fatigue? I do think there's a all or nothing mindset that even like I am victim to, like I do nothing because I want to be so careful. But if you've reached that point and you're going to snap if you don't go see a movie, okay, go see a movie. Like take a rapid test first, wear a mask, go to the movie, then stay home for the next seven, 10 days. I mean, like go to work, be masked, but like, don't put anybody else at risk for the next seven to 10 days. And then like get a rapid test again. Like that's okay. It's this like all or nothing where like, I've decided I need to go to a movie. And so I already kind of like broke the seal on like COVID precautions. So then I went to a movie. So I might as well go to a party the next day and then a concert the next week. And then I'm like, no, 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 no. You can just do one thing and then take it easy for a little while and then do another thing and to make sure you're not contributing to spread if you if you're really willing to do that. I mean, that's what I did in the, on the on the way to and back from Niger. I was like, I am part of this global health project. I don't want to give it up. It's very important to me. It's important to the people on the ground, but I don't want to put anybody else at risk for a decision that I am making. So I like masked like crazy all the way there. And the whole time I was there and tested every day and on the way back and la la. la. And then I slept in a separate bedroom from my husband for seven, seven, 10 days and masked when I was around him um, until I tested negative 10 days out because I wanted to, it to be only a risk I was taking upon myself and not putting anybody else at risk. I'm not saying you have to like separate yourself from your husband for 10 days after you go see a movie, but like. Think about who you're putting at risk with your actions and, you know, layer those protections to make it as a low risk as possible. Yeah. And I think like I've noticed at least that we're kind of at the stage now, especially like here in Ontario, we were just in lockdown, but it's lifting now. So like things are open again. I'm noticing like I need to be having more conversations with people, like opening up communication about that because... Now, when you see a person, you don't always know. And I'm trying to get into the habit of offering this information to people when I see them. I notice like with some people that comes a lot more natural than with others. But I feel like at the stage, like in the pandemic, that should be something that everyone's doing. That's just like a natural part of the social fabric. I don't know. <laughs> this is our new normal. We've got to get used to talking about it. I've heard multiple people talk about it. Like you check the weather and then dress accordingly. Like we should be checking this COVID status in our community the same way. Like, are we at a super high rate? Maybe not a good time to crack and go to the movies. Are we in between waves? Maybe a little bit, be a little bit looser. 
and have those conversations. Just like if you're like going camping with friends, you'd be like, what's the weather like? What are we going to pack? You're going to get together with your friends now. Be like, how's the COVID situation? Like, what have you been doing? This is what I've been doing. Are we all cool with this? This is part of our life now. Yep. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the future now. Um, Last year in March 2021, I guess it's not March. The last time you and I talked, Katie and I were in lockdown in Ontario, and we continued to be in lockdown for many months following that. Um, And you were working on the vaccine rollout in Seattle. But since then, a lot has changed. Uh, Since then, we've seen two new major COVID-19 variants. People all over the world have been in and out of lockdowns. And... I don't know. I think it's hard to feel optimistic right now in the midst of Omicron, which is rough because last fall I was starting to feel quite good. Like I felt like things were getting under control and like I had some semblance of a life again. So yeah, given all that, I do try to like focus on the good, which is why I wanted to ask, do you feel like there's been progress made in terms of the pandemic? And what can we be celebrating and grateful for at this stage? I mean, there has just inarguably been a huge amount of progress. That's fact, even though it may not feel that way. These vaccines are fantastic. I mean, imagine how much worse the Omicron wave would have been if, if vaccines weren't available. I can't even imagine what it, what what would have happened. It would have been so horrific, and it's bad already. Um, and that's like in the states with you know forty percent of the population unvaccinated. Um, we have new antiviral treatments that look great. We certainly have great data that shows that masks work and that higher quality masks work better. And I feel like people are getting a handle on you should be wearing a surgical mask or an or a KN95 or an N95 and that is great protection and to layer all those protections together is fantastic. We know what to do now. You know, we've been doing this for 2 years. We know what to do to keep ourselves safe. So we've made a ton of progress. I feel it this like death of the idea that this is all going to like capital E end and just be over. It's 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 not. This is That's how it is. But we have so many tools to keep ourselves safe and are so, so much better off than we were when this started. We've just got to recognize that this is how it is now and start using all those tools. Yeah. It's strange because like your comment about capital E-N-D and I feel like it's taken me two years to accept that. And it honestly only happened like recently that I started to realize like I need to accept that this is like normal now and I need to find ways to like survive and be happy and like thrive if possible (laughs) in this this world. But it's hard because like I don't know about you, but like I mourn my like pre-COVID life so much and it felt like accepting that there isn't no like hard end to this made the morning hit me even harder. I'm getting kind of deep, but like, yeah, no, I it's, agree. Been a, it's been a, t- a tough realization. Like it's led to some sleepless nights. I agree. And the way we haven't collectively mourned these COVID deaths, we also haven't been given space to like collectively mourn that our way of life before COVID is gone. We're expected to just 
kind of pretend like we can pick up right where we left off and things are going to go back to pre-COVID normal and they just aren't. I'm going through that same thing right now. I feel like hitting a wall with my science communication and with trying to convince vaccine hesitant people really made me realize like, oh, there's just a certain percentage of people that aren't going to get on board with this, no matter how earnestly I try. (laughs) And I'm going to have to live with that. And the fact that because of them, this isn't, I mean, and other reasons, like the bet a lot because of them, this isn't going to go away. So yeah, figuring out how to live my life as fully as I can live it, the safest way I can live it and enjoy the things I used to enjoy the safest way I can within these new parameters and not letting COVID completely take over and wait for some magical day when I can just go back to doing all the things I used to do this way I used to do them. It's rough. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I feel you. (laughs) Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier in the fall, especially like fall of last year, I was feeling pretty optimistic about the future. And part of that meant I was feeling optimistic about travel in 2022. Now, I don't feel as optimistic. My partner and I have planned and then canceled like so many trips in the last few weeks being like, could we go somewhere in March? Mm, No, we're not comfortable. So it's like the never ending discussion about whether we're going to try to do it or not. So what is your take on traveling amid the Omicron surge? Do you think it can be done safely or like, do you think it's better to stay home and try to wait it out? Do you think there's hope for traveling in 2022? What would like your general take be on this? Yeah, I think there's definitely hope. It's hard to predict about numbers. You know, it does look in many places like Omicron kind of decreased and came down the other side of the wave swiftly the way that it increased swiftly swiftly so that would be nice to see i am hopeful that we'll have a nice little space between waves where maybe we could get some travel in there's been a bit of that when i'm trying to like game out when would be good to travel you know like maybe after this wave but before the next one it's but it's you know it's, it's impossible to really predict but i think at this point it really is very individual what's your level of comfort with risk What's your ability to get stuck somewhere if you do? What's your risk level as far as your health? I'm super protective of my mom because she's in the age range that puts her at high risk. And I lost my dad. So I'm like, we can only lose one parent per decade. So you're on house arrest. So and you know, obviously, if you are of a higher risk condition, then you have to be more careful. And maybe yeah, maybe you go to Iceland instead of Mexico, or it's super individualized. But I think if you can like do similarly to what I did in Niger, like be as conscientious about it as you can. Like, unfortunately it makes sort of like a one week trip into like a full month scenario where like, okay, well the week or two before I go, I'm not going to see anybody. I'm probably going to get tested before I get on the plane. We're planning to go to Mexico and like we'll test before we get on the plane, even though it's not required because again, it limits your chance of getting stuck in Mexico. If I, I'd rather know before I get off on, on the plane if I have an asymptomatic case of COVID. Um, but yeah, we'll limit who we see before we go because we don't want to be bringing COVID and we also don't want to like catch it from someone before we go and then realize we have it while we're there. Yeah. And then we have the trip. We're planning you on outdoors only activities and outdoor only restaurants and spacing and etc and like we were thinking like oh whale watching trip and then we're like well because no, no, we're all gonna be on a boat together and uh, so that's out 
And then when you come back again, like 10 days of probably, I'm not going to go to a party for 10 days. I'm not going to hang out with my mom for 10 days. You know, my husband and I both have work in person. He teaches fifth grade and I am a nurse, but we're both masked the whole time. So that's, you know, we're probably not risking others there. And then, you know, get a test at seven, 10 days and call it good. But it does make your one week trip into this whole like one month long safety scenario. Yeah. (laughs) But you got to think about all that stuff. So I mean, I don't I don't necessarily think I was listening to our like last year's episode this morning, like I said, and I was basically like, don't get on a plane if you can possibly not. And I think we're definitely in more of a gray area now. I don't know how long we can continue to tell people like, just don't travel at all. But if you are going to travel, just please take as many precautions as you can. I see people who are like, well, I'm in Mexico, so I'm going to the disco and I'm like going on this tour and I'm like and eating indoors and I'm at the bar. I'm like, you don't, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can just go and stay outside. Be as safe as you can. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like where I'm at with it, to be honest. And And I guess like part of it for me personally is like, I'm realizing that the amount of mental health benefit I got out of like two weeks in Portugal was so high that like it's worth it to me to sacrifice like basically an entire month of like isolating before isolating after all the money all the precautions are worth it just to have that like experience of traveling again even if it doesn't get to be like pre-covid travel like it's fine I'm just happy to be somewhere else (laughs) that's the mindset I would like to see among people is like what's it worth to me is it worth it to me to take all the precautions and do it safely and if it is then great go do it it's this throwing caution to the wind and like I can't do this anymore I don't want to think about it anymore. There's a middle ground there where you can be like, I need this trip for my mental health and I'm willing to do what I need to do to keep other people and myself safe while I do it. It's kind of funny because we're almost seeing replicated this like travel attitude that I have been critical of before. And like in pre-COVID days, I was very critical of the mentality of going to someone else's country and just like using it as an excuse to do whatever you want and be whoever you want without respecting like local culture and custom and all that. And we're kind of seeing that like same attitude replicated in travel these days because like I have noticed like we even saw it all these people from Quebec flew to Mexico recently from Canada and like we're just behaving like there was no pandemic. It's the same issue. It's like you're using it as an excuse to just like throw all caution to the wind and yeah. Yeah, being on vacation doesn't mean you just get to ignore complete reality. I know everyone wants to relax and have fun and that's great, but not at the expense of the people in the place that you're visiting. So you're going to Mexico? Yes, so this is oh, that's exciting. <laughs> yes, we are we are planning a trip to Mexico, and I, I, again, like there was so much that went into it. Like we decided on this area on the Baja Peninsula because we could get a direct flight, and it's only four hours, and there's no connecting flights. We could have gotten to where we ended up wanting to go by taking a connecting flight, but we're like, no, we'll just go and rent a car and drive for a couple of hours instead. I would rather be out of the airport faster and on a shorter flight. All of these things went into deciding like where we were going to go to minimize the risk. Yeah, I love that. The direct flight is like also a new thing that like I'm realizing is so important because that was another thing that factored into Iceland. We were like, it's a place that if you're in Toronto, you can easily fly to. It's a short flight. It's direct. Whereas like going to Central America from here is like, it's really hard. You have like, often you have to connect in the US and then also in Central America, it just takes forever and multiple flights. 
And so, yeah, these are things I never used to think about so much when I travel. And now they're like part of the equation. And it really like harshes you. I mean, like it really harshes your mellow when you're like trying to go on vacation. And then like, for me, the plane situation is very stressful. So I'm like, I would just rather get the plane situation over as quickly as possible. <laughs> well, thank you, Emily, for We're joining like, on us that again. Note. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be fine. Don't it's going to be fine. <laughs> but honestly, happy. thank you for joining us. I'm really glad that we were able to reconvene, even though it had to be to talk about something that is so awful. But genuinely, I think like people find these episodes really useful. And that's why we keep making them because whenever we have you on, people message us and say that it was really helpful for them to like make informed travel decisions in the context of this pandemic. Well, it's so nice for me to hear that people out there are still caring and still interested and still wanting to do the right thing. So that helps my mental health. So thank they you to are, all your listeners for, sure. for being good yeah. human beings. Um, where can people find you if they'd like to follow you, listen to you, read your work, etc.? Yeah, I have a my husband and I have a blog called Two Dusty Travelers. It's just two dustytravelers.com and Instagram of the same name. That is kind of what we have been doing the most on the last year, two years since COVID took off. So don't DM me because I'll never see it because it's just full of anti-vaxxers. Like, I don't even look at my DMs anymore. It's a real scary place in there. So if you really <laughs> need to get a hold of me, um, like, my email is is up on our on our Instagram and on our blog. And um, our blog was originally about um, travel and global health work. And my hope to get writing about that again, hopefully, <laughs> now that we're trying to get back to a semblance of normal. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lohr. Do you want to support this podcast? If so, there are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. Mm -hmm.